Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Ken Partridge, who is the author of Hell of a Hat, The Rise of 90s Ska and Swing. Ken, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you very much uh, you know, for, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Could you start by talking a little bit about how this book came to be, why you wanted to put a book together about ska and swing? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess it had always been kind of in in, in the back of my mind for a long time. Um, I've been, you know, do, doing uh, music uh, journalism for, I guess, going on 20 years at this point, which is uh, kind of scary to think about. But yeah, this was like the music that I really kind of, you know, loved when I was like, you know, 15 or 16, um, you know, probably more so the ska, the, yeah, the ska than, than uh, the swing, although I, I did like the swing as well. But um yeah, this was kind of like the first music that I really kind of like, you know, gravitated to. And I was like old enough to go to shows when I had a car and it kind of like, like informed my personality when I was, you know, 15 or 16 for uh, better or for worse, I guess. Um, so I just always wanted to write about it. And, um, you know, I guess I'd always kind of, you know, thought it, uh, uh, um, in the back of my mind that I was always kind of thinking about like, you know, why, you know, did this stuff get popular when it did? And, um, so that was something that I kind of wanted to explore with uh, with the book as well. So can you, before we get into kind of the meat of what you talk about in the book, can you kind of sort of set the scene for us? I mean, um, Scott has a, Scott especially, well, they both have kind of a long history and you're really focused on the U.S. and the 1990s. Um, so can you sort of like set it up so that for folks who might not be as familiar with that history and what was going on, how you came, how we got sort of got to the 90s in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a it's a long story that you know spans uh, continents and and decades. Um, yeah, you know, ska goes all the way back to to uh, Jamaica um, in the late um, I think like nineteen fifty nine is like maybe when you know some people say that the first ska records were you know coming together. But you know, certainly the early part of uh, of, of the uh, the following decade and in, in uh, the early sixties. Um, and yeah, ska was sort of. Um, it was, you know, very much influenced by like American R and B music, you know, stuff like Fats Domino that, you know, people were, you know, like like hearing on, um, you know, sound systems in uh, Jamaica, which were like these big outdoor, um, they would get a bunch of like speakers and kind of like hook them up into these big, like makeshift, you know, giant wall of sound speakers. And they would play these American R and B records at these like dance halls. And it was like this big competition to see like who could have the most obscure records because, you know, people would like want to go to that dance hall where they could hear, you know, songs that like nobody else had. And eventually it just kind of transpired that, uh, you know, Jamaica started, um, you know, like a sort of like homegrown um, uh, music scene kind of grew up around this where they made their own records all of a sudden. And it was, uh, you know, these like artists kind of doing their own version of, you know, American R&B, but also mixed with some of the uh, jazz music they were hearing. Um, also possibly some influences of, of uh, Mento, which had been like an earlier kind of a, a, a folk sound in uh, Jamaica. Um, and this was like right around the time that, that uh, Jamaica... Um, um, you know, became independent of uh, the UK. So there was like a lot of optimism in uh, Jamaica. And it was this kind of period of like, you know, ska was this thing that like Jamaicans were doing. Uh, it was like their own culture. And, you know, it was like they were putting their own music out into the world. And it, um, you know, it, 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 it did kind of travel the world. Uh, like at that time, um, it was, you know, featured in, um, in like movies and stuff and like the world's 
hair in, in um, 1964, I believe it was. Uh, sorry, I'm a, I'm a stutterer, so you'll yeah, there could be a couple words that I... Uh, um, so yeah, Scott kind of had this moment and then... Um, you know, uh, it, it sort of just as fast, it, it uh, sort of went away because it um, like evolved into a kind of slower sound called rock steady. And then that ultimately became uh, reggae. So like you can think of ska as being kind of like the, the you know, kind of grandfather of uh, reggae music. It's got the same emphasis on the offbeat, just a lot, you know, faster. And it's got a lot of horns and it's this real sort of danceable music. Um, so, you know, ska, you know, becomes rock steady, that becomes reggae. And it's kind of forgotten for a while, but then... In, in uh, the UK about, uh, you know, 20 years later, um, in, you know, the uh, late 70s, early 80s, it was kind of picked up by a, a new generation of bands, um, uh, many of whom were part of this uh, record label that was called uh, Two-Tone. And uh, Two-Tone wasn't just a record label. It was sort of like a, like a whole uh, youth movement. And as the uh, name suggests, it was, you know, black and white kids coming together Um it was sort of like the punk rock kids from the UK, um, along with um, the sort of uh, children of the first uh, generation of, of uh, Jamaican immigrants that had come over to the UK um, uh, in the years after World War II. Uh, so it was, you know, black and white kids coming together, kind of playing music that, you know, nodded to both cultures. And it was at a time when there was a lot of racism in the UK too. So it was like a lot of like, you know, uh, the songs kind of tended to be about, um, you know, about racism and like overcoming racism and, you know, trying to build a a multicultural Britain. And it was this really cool, you know, sort of a political thing. Um, And so, yeah, that was really big in the UK for about, you know, two or three years. And then, you know, Scott kind of died down again. Um, But, you know, Two-Tone traveled, you know, uh, 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 to the US because like, you know, some of these bands got played on MTV. Some of them made some, you know, minor... um, you know, had some like minor chart chart uh, success in, in the U.S. So uh, by the early '80s, you 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 started to see ska bands popping up in America, um, and then it kind of there was a you know for about a decade there was a you know pretty good um, underground you know ska uh, ska thing happening in America, but then by the uh, mid to late '90s it kind of got like picked up by uh, the major labels and it was on MTV and it became this whole phenomenon, and that's kind of the um, you know, time span that I cover in the book is when, when like Scott sort of blows up and goes mainstream. So you sort of, um, give us little snapshots into some of the careers of a number of artists, a number of performers. Um, and you, and you kind of start it, we, you know, do a lot of coasts because it was a lot on the coast. Um, and a lot of stuff happening in California, but we can't talk about ska. And I think you kind of start with this without talking about the mighty, mighty Boston. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, can you talk a little bit about like, right. And talk a little bit about them and, and their importance and, and why we need to talk about them. Yeah. Yeah. The Boston's are great. I mean, you know, they're probably one of the bands that, you know, most people who have only like a passing, you know, knowledge uh, or sort of interest in, in ska, you know, they might know the Boston's because they had a big hit with uh, the impression that I get. Um, yeah, the Boston's are out of Boston, as their name, uh, you know, suggests. And they were sort of one of the first bands to uh, take ska and mix it with uh, not only punk rock, but also with like hardcore punk. So it had a real, you know, they would have songs that have like, 
you know, like really like, you know, crushing riffs like one second. And then all of a sudden they switched into this really like upbeat ska with all the horns blasting. And, um, you know, there had been like other bands that had kind of, you know, tried to mix those things before, but the Boston's did it in, in a really distinct way. Um, and yeah, they, you know, kind of like, you know, grinded it out for a long time before they finally uh, broke through in the, you know, late 90s. They had been a band since like the early 80s, basically, and put out, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, four or five records before they finally broke through. So, and had built a massive, you know, fan base on on both coasts and all, all across the country, just like basically by, like by virtue of their live shows, which were, you know, pretty chaotic and uh you know, they wore plaid, which was sort of like their thing. So they'd be, there'd be like, you know, it's like eight guys on stage wearing old, you know, plaid jackets and, you know, dancing around like crazy. And uh, yeah, they're, yes. uh, they're fantastic. Hiring, um, you paying one person just to dance on stage, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah what a novel idea, right? <laughs> yes, I do. I will say, I do remember seeing the Mighty Mighty Boston's. And then it must have happened, seeing them with maybe not very many people there. And then it probably was around, like you're talking about like 96, 97, where we went to try and get into the show and like there was a line around the corner and it was sold out and you couldn't get in at all. So it was like, oh, they became really, really popular really, really quickly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 They did definitely blow up. It was, uh. You know, they weren't the only ones. It was uh, it was like a weird time where all of a sudden on like alternative stations that had been playing, you know, Pearl Jam and like Nirvana, you know, nonstop two years earlier, all of a sudden you saw these bands that had like saxophones could all of a sudden be, be played on alternative radio. It was it was a strange, a strange so, and wondrous time. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, so you also like, like you talk about that, another um being that you kind of talk about that was really kind of important to this sort of foundation of other bands is the um, Royal Crown Review, right? So can you, and which um, for some people might not be a name that's as noticeable noticeable as um, the Mighty Mighty Boston's, but could you talk a little bit about Royal Crown Review and why they were really kind of instrumental and important? Yeah, yeah, definitely. They were sort of... Um... I mean, like not uh, so much on, on, on the Scott thing, but with um, you know, the whole the whole like uh, neo, the, the whole the whole uh, neo swing uh, revival. Uh, the Royal Crown Review was really the first band um, that kind of like put that scene on the map. This was, uh, you know, they formed out in uh, Los Angeles in uh, 1989, um, and yeah, they'd been a you know they'd been like mostly a bunch of old you know punk rock guys. They'd you know, a bunch of them had been in like punk bands in the eighties and, um, you know, what happens is you get to be, I don't know, 25, 30. And the idea of jumping around in a mosh pit, uh, with like combat boots, maybe isn't that appealing anymore. So they started listening to all this old, um, like, you know, jazz and jump blues and swing music. Um, and yeah, the first version of that band had, I think it was, um, you know, two or three guys who had been in this band, uh, Youth Brigade, they were like one of the early 80s hardcore bands out of, so it just shows how, you know, the punk to uh, swing pipeline kind of worked. But um, yeah, so they were like really the first band to, um, you know, go down this road and they got pretty popular all up and down the coast. They went up to San Francisco where they were like really welcomed because there was already kind of like a, like a retro culture, I think up in San Francisco, they were just kind of looking for a band that would, they could all kind of latch onto in a way. And uh, Royal Crown Review was, you know, very much that band. Um, 
And then, yeah, within a few years, there were, you know, a bunch of other bands um, kind of, you know, not so much really like, you know, copied them or anything because they all kind of formed independently. Like, you know, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy formed in, um, you know, Ventura, Cal- uh, was it Ventura, California? Uh, yeah, not like super far from LA, but, you know, they had never even like really heard, uh, you know, uh, 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 the Royal Crown Review. They just had the same influences. And, um, you know, Brian Setzer Orchestra, he, you know, this is uh, Brian Setzer from uh, the Stray Cats, the, you know, big rockabilly band in the 80s. Um, he just sort of happened to stumble on this idea of doing like a big band, you know, swing thing with, with his rockabilly style. So, um, yeah, like out in California, this, this like this whole, um, you know, thing kind of developed and, um, you know, some of these bands started to uh, make inroads on major labels and things. And um, it was kind of similar to the ska thing where it was like this kind of underground thing that um, just kind of built a lot of uh, momentum. And um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, 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 um, you know, sort of like a music of like the ska and the swing scenes were, you know, fairly different in, I mean, a lot of ways, but just from like an outside perspective, it was a bunch of people wearing, you know, suits and playing horns and, you know, playing like dance music for uh, groups of kids that maybe, you know, like I was saying a few years earlier would have been, you know, moshing along the grunge bands. So there was definitely like a lot of parallels, I think, between, um, you know, the ska and the uh, swing scenes. You know, and speaking of that, one of the things you kind of talk about and reference is this like importance of the, that time frame where you, you know, like a couple of years before we have, well, even like the late 80s, we're coming out of the Reagan era, right? It's prior to 9-11. And this time was sort of like it came along right place, right time, kind of perfect timing. And so can you t- talk a little bit about that? That thread kind of goes throughout your book about why this time was perfect for Sky and perfect for swing to sort of come in and be what it was, even if it was just a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think it's one thing that I really kind of thought about a lot over the years was like, you know, why did this happen? Like why did all these sort of very danceable, like upbeat, you know, well-dressed bands all of a sudden have, have this like, you know, one or two year period where they were like, you know, the coolest bands around. And, you know, I just, you know, started thinking a lot about, just like what was happening in America at that time as, as compared to even like in like the early nineties, you had, you know, like the LA riots and there was like a recession and, you know, it was sort of a, a comparatively dark time. And you think back to like, okay, so like what was happening in, you know, music at that time. And it was, you know, grunge and gangster rap with like the, the kind of like the two things that were really in the early nineties. And, you know, I've always thought that it's not really like an accident that, you know, things kind of line up in terms of art and history. I think there's like a lot of correlation there. And, you know, the late nineties, it was this time where, um, you know, the um, economy was booming. It was like, you know, more than 4% uh, GDP growth for, you know, for a while there. Um, you know, it's the Clinton years, you know, crime was down. There was no, uh, wars really going on with other nations, you know, a couple things here and there, but, and, you know, this is like, not to say that it was some golden era where we didn't have any problems because, all the problems that we're, you know, currently experiencing, I think we're always there. Sorry. It was just, you know, this period where it was maybe kind of more sort of under the surface, you know, for a while. And there was this air of optimism and, you know, it was like the beginning of the internet and, you know, nine 11 hadn't happened yet. And, um, so I think it was the perfect time for this kind of upbeat, you know, dance music to, uh, to come in and, um, you know, capture the imagination of the alternative kids who, 
just a few years earlier would have been listening to much more uh, like aggressive and uh, you know somber music in a lot of cases. And and so you know we have these sort of bands kind of setting up this scene and doing all this, and then we have Southern California come along, right? And um, two probably of the biggest, well, probably the biggest commercially successful person person right not even in a i mean in a band but then person gwen stefani right that comes up um but we have no doubt in gwen stefani and we also have um sublime which you talk about being you know some people will say it's not ska and some will so could you talk a little bit about southern california and what was going on and and the and these two bands and their importance in this scene yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, those two bands are, are are kind of, you know, they're kind of outliers in some way, which is, uh, uh, you know, which is why I sort of grouped them together in that one chapter. Um, you know, first off, in the sense that like they formed all the way back in the '80s, which uh, is just, you know, kind of crazy to think about because they both had, you know, their big mainstream uh, popularity about you know ten years or so after they, or. or in the case of, you know, no doubt anyway, I think they'd already been a band for like nine years by the time Tragic Kingdom, you know, went in, in super platinum, and, you know, and they, you know, blew up. So, yeah, they had, you know, they had both, you know, kind of, um, you know, come up listening to the, you know, two-tone uh, ska that I mentioned earlier, which was um, especially popular in uh, Southern California. And they were both kind of the same um, in that they mixed a lot of things in with their music. Like, you know, No Doubt started out as, as a pretty uh, conventional ska band. But I think by the time anybody knew who they were, they'd already started bringing in, like, you know, rock influences and all kinds of weird stuff. Um, like, you know, some kind of like, you know, sort of like a Chili Peppers type, you know, vibes on some of the songs with like slap bass and stuff. And, you know, similarly with uh, Sublime, they did, you know, punk songs. They they would do reggae songs. They would have like turntable scratching and hip hop stuff, and so they were really like open to a lot of sounds too. And um, yeah, they just put you know these two bands were actually like you know uh, uh, pretty friendly with each other too. They um, you know played the same clubs and <clears throat> they were kind of like the yin and the yang in a lot of ways because uh, no doubt were very uh, professional and. <clears throat> like well behaved and they would show up on time and, you know, play their show and then go home and, you know, sublime were kind of like uh, notorious for being just, they would show up drunk and their like their shows would end in riots and it was always something crazy going on. Um, but yeah, weirdly enough, they both kind of ended up popping off around the same time. And, uh, you know, obviously for, um, you know, sublime, it was kind of, it was kind of a bittersweet thing because, uh, their lead singer, uh, you know, Brad Noel, uh, you know, died of a drug o- of a, a drug overdose. Not you know, not long before, um, uh, you know, the album that would actually break them, you know, finally came out. So, um, yeah, there's definitely like a lot of weird parallels between those two bands, uh, for sure. And there were other bands sort of coming out of Southern Ca- Orange County, sort of Southern California. Um, you talk a bit about Real Big Fish, Save Ferris. So can you talk a little bit about some of those other less well-known, I, well, I guess less commercially successful, maybe we should say, um, bands and sort of their importance in their role because they are sort of long-lasting um, bands as well in that scene. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I mean, yeah, both of those bands had, you know, pretty big hits on alternative radio and MTV and 
Um, yeah, I, I, I sort of grouped them together in a chapter just because I feel like, well, they had kind of parallel stories, but just, you know, beyond that, I think like Orange County, you know, maybe is the, 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 is the sort of, you know, all, all the things that, that I said before about how the late 90s were this sort of upbeat, optimistic uh, time where, you know, bands could make this kind of fun music that wasn't all that political. I think maybe like Orange County is kind of like the epitome of that because it was, you know, it's this kind of, it's, you know, known as this very like well-to-do area, um, you know, about, I don't know, 30 miles from Los Angeles or whatever. And, um, you know, the, yeah, obviously there's, you know, more to it than just what people kind of like generalize. But, uh, you know, the sense that I got from talking to, um, you know, both members of, um, of uh, Dave uh, Ferris and, and, and Real Big Fish is that, you know, kids from these areas like, like went to school where, like you could, you know, like the, you know, school bands were like really well-funded. So like you could, you know, get a trombone or saxophone or whatever. And, um, you know, uh, there weren't like a ton of, it was like, you know, the suburbs and there weren't like a ton of problems necessarily. And it was just, it was a really great sort of atmosphere for the, the uh, creation of bands like, you know, Real Big Fish and Safe Ferris, who were kind of just in it for like having a good time and um, weren't like necessarily saying a lot about, you know, the state of the world with their music, but, um, you know, definitely, um, ended up making a pretty big impact on, on the, the, you know, national scene for sure. Yeah. I love the story about, um, transferring to a different school so that because the band was better at that school, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like there's better music, like I'm going to go for ROTC, but I'm really not going to go for ROTC. But <laughs> <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. And so we've got this going on, and you mentioned this before, but like it, the importance of punk and sort of ska punk to this scene can't be overlooked, right? You you kind of talk about this in many ways, and then you have a chapter that you kind of dedicate to ska punk and what this means, um, and and this evolving, you know, this this evolving part of the punk scene. So could you talk a little bit about that and some of the bands and and what why that is important? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I would say that, you know, ska punk is sort of what, um, you know, so you've, you've got, you know, ska going from, you know, Jamaica to the UK and then ultimately here to the US. And I think that was kind of like America's uh, contribution to the to the ska story in a lot of ways was uh, was ska punk. I mean, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the uh, two-tone bands in the UK had, you know, definitely brought some, you know, punk energy into it. But um, in the US, it was really you know, ska punk was really sort of the kind of dominant sound, I would say, in the uh, 90s, you know, bands like Less Than Jake, um, you know, Suicide Machines. Um, and I think it was just because it was kind of like easier for, you know, for like American uh, teenagers to kind of understand. I mean, it wasn't, you know, some of the like early Jamaican stuff is like really jazzy and it's, um, I don't know, maybe it sounds kind of old fashioned to, you know, modern listeners, whereas like, if you put some really heavy punk guitars and then, you know, some horns over the top of it, um, it might make more sense for, you know, like, you know, kids who like the skateboard or something that, you know, they might be able to kind of wrap their heads around it more. So yeah, Scott Punk was really kind of, you know, most of the bands that got signed to major labels and got onto um, MTV were, you know, more in the Scott Punk vein than they were the kind of traditional uh, Jamaican Scott. Um, sorry, my throat's a little scratchy there. 
Um, and, you know, that caused some, you know, debate among like purists who, uh, you know, would say like, oh, that stuff's not like not real ska or like, you know, Lesson Jake's not ska. They don't sound like the Scatolites or, you know, things like that. But, um, you know, those bands were super, you know, they, they kind of brought new, new uh, listeners in and, you know, they're probably like a lot of kids who, you know, first heard Lesson Jake or something and then they got more into ska and then they discovered, you know, the specials in the UK and then go all the way back to the Scatolites in Jamaica. And so I think they were kind of a, a gateway for a lot of, you know, listeners in the same way that maybe uh, kids that got into like, you know, Green Day in, you know, like, like a few days earlier, maybe like that led them back to the Clash and the Buzzcocks and things like that. Um, so. Yeah. And, and this also, this kind of, you, you know, you have the, you talk about a lot about the, like, so we have ska, but we also, and we mentioned before, you talked about Royal Crown Review, but you also have um, this move into kind of swing and the role of sort of these swing bands as well being part of um, bringing back sort of this old school, let's go and get dressed up and get in our suits and ties and everybody's going to get up and dance and, um, and getting some major airplay as well. And so can you talk a little bit too about kind of what was going on then um, with the swing bands and, you know, 15 horns and, and whatever it is we need on stage? Yeah, I mean, you know, with the swing, I think for a lot of the bands that kind of started it off, like, you know, Royal Crown, who we mentioned, I think it was just really born out of a love of this kind of, you know, mid-century American music, this like jump blues and swing and, you know, Louis Jordan and Louis Prima and things that, you know, these are all things that kind of tend to be lost, I think, to history. Like people just think of, you know, the rock and roll era and like if it did, like if it happened before you know, Chuck Berry and Elvis and a little Richard, it, it, it's almost like it didn't happen, but there was all this really great music of, um, you know, the years like immediately before that, you know, sort of after world war two, but you know, before rock and roll, you know, guys like, you know, Louis Jordan and uh, Wynoni Harris, it's like really great upbeat kind of dance music that actually kind of sounds a lot like rock and roll. Um, it's maybe got more emphasis on the, like on the horns and it kind of swings a little more, but, so yeah, most of the bands that were uh, playing this kind of music in the uh, '90s were, you know, mostly doing jump blues. Although some had more of like a, you know, big band kind of sound. Like you know, Brian Setzer had the eighteen-piece like, like horn section that, you know, most of these bands uh, did not have. But um, so I think it was kind of born out of out of a love for this old music, and then for the people that got into it that were not in the bands, I think it, you know, served a few different purposes. Um, I've heard some people say that it was kind of like a, you know, response to grunge in a lot of ways. It's like, you know, it's like everyone else is, is like just going to wear, you know, dirty flannel shirts. Well, you know, screw it. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to wear like a really sharp suit and get a hat and I'm going to go out and I'm going to learn how to, you know, Lindy hop with my girlfriend or something. And so I think for some people it was almost like, um, a, you know, counter uh, revolution to like the revolution that, that, that was grunge and alternative rock. Um, I also just think it's, um, you know, some of the, the like kind of archetypes in the swing scene. Um, it's just kind of a, you know, classic American image. It's like, you know, um, it's like, you know, Marlon Brando or it's um, like, uh, well, I guess there's like a lot of, you know, sort of like overlap with the uh, rockabilly scene too. So it's like Elvis or just these like sort of classic American images. I think people really kind of gravitated to, to that. And um you know, like those things kind of, you know, never go out of style in a way. So, or like, you know, Zippo lighters and, uh, you know, I, I don't know. So 
you know, definitely it was um, kind of just an alternative to what had been the alternative. And it was really um, attractive to a lot of people, I think. And you mentioned, you talk a little bit too about sort of, and it has, and you know, in some ways it had to do with some of the songs that came out, but also going back even to the Zoot Suit and and that kind of what was happening what well you talk about the zoot suit riots but what was sort of going on especially in mexican-american culture in the 50s and the importance of that with um, a foundational space for some of these bands yeah yeah that was super interesting that there were you know sort of a like a i would say um uh yeah, there were you know, two of the big songs from this era, from the you know '90s, you know neo swing era, were about the Zoot Suit riots, which um, were um, just these like really awful. It, it, it's just you know kind of like a you know, very uh, like, like ugly incident in in um, you know U.S. history that you know, it doesn't get talked about all that much. It was you know during World War II, um, these. Um, sort of a serviceman back on, um, you know, back on leave in uh, Los Angeles, um, kind of went through the streets, uh, beating up these, uh, young Mexican, uh, sort of like, uh, uh, these, uh, 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 these, uh, young, young, uh, young Mexican Americans, um, who were called, uh, Pachucos. That was sort of like the uh, subculture and they were known for wearing zoot suits. And this was a time of, you know, fabric rations because of the war. So that's always been kind of talked about as like one reason for this, you know, violence. But I think it was, it was, you know, mostly just kind of racially motivated. Um, so you had these, you know, servicemen going around and like attacking these, uh, you know, young men wearing zoot suits. And that became the, uh, the basis in uh, some ways for, you know, probably the biggest hit of this whole era, which was uh, Zoot Suit Riot by Cherry Pop and Daddies. Although their song doesn't like address the riots in a, in a you know, kind of direct way. It's more like a metaphor where, um, you know, the singer for for, for the band, uh, Stephen Perry, told me that he was trying to kind of write a song that would be like a rallying call for all the, you know, neo-swing kids. And the idea was that, you know, the band was on the side of the Pachucos. And it's like, um, but the funny thing was, like, if you go back and read a lot of, of uh, the press from back in the uh, 90s, almost nobody asked him about, like, what the Zoot Suit Riots were or, like, why did he write a song about this? And I think it's because, like, nobody really talked about it. Like, I mean... You know, prior to hearing that song when it came out, I, I I'd never heard of the uh, Zoot Suit Riots. It's just a you know thing that wasn't really talked about in my uh, U.S. history classes, and you know, it uh, kind of makes you think. Well, you know, it's it's like it's like how many you know more uh, things that were kind of like that uh, happened that we don't you know don't get talked about. But um, yeah, and also a Royal Crown Review had a song about it too, um, which was kind of more like a description of of uh, the events. Uh, and it wasn't as big of a hit as uh, Trey Pop and Daddy's, but yeah, I found that to be you know fascinating to kind of learn the history of, of of the riots themselves, but like also just that this really dark event in you know American history could then sort of inspire these two uh, neo swing songs. You know, forty years later, it's just or actually fifty years later. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it seemed like um, that media was more um, concerned about saying the name Cherry Pop and Daddies <laughs> right. than they were about what they were singing about, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like you told me that, you know, that, that uh, they picked that name at a time where they kind of never thought they were going to get out of their little, you know, scene in uh, Eugene, Oregon, this, you know, little punk scene. And, you know, lo and behold, eight or nine years later, they're on uh, Jay Leno and <laughs> they've got a, you know, yeah. So, 
Yeah. It's kind of funny how things work out. No, I think most bands that um, come out of the punk scene, if yes, some of them um, who make it uh, uh, probably are like, why did we choose that name? Because we never should have chosen that name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, another thing that you talk about that I think is important, you know, so when you're talking about this is the importance of sort of the record label, um, right? Because you you talk about some independent labels, but, you know, that moved to the major, we, you know, there's the move to the major labels, but there were also some of these independent labels and musicians who are really starting to or trying to keep sky and keep kind of swing alive and exist so can you talk a little bit about those what you know sort of found out and sort of those record labels and 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 what was going on there yeah i mean you know probably the most important one in in the book and i devote a whole chapter to it is is a uh, moon sky records out of out of new york city they were really the, the uh, label that you know, to uh, uh, to the extent that there was a ska scene in America in the uh, '90s, it was due in large part to uh, to Moon building it. Um, this was a label that was you know founded by um, um, uh, by by uh, Rob Hingley, who's known as as a uh, Bucket, and he's uh, uh, the founder of the band the uh, Toasters, who formed in the early '80s in uh, New York. Uh, they're still going strong today. Uh, he's the only original member left, but they. Um, you know, nobody would, would uh, put out their records. Uh, so, so Bucket just said, all right, well, I'll just, I'll make my own label. And, you know, sort of all, all throughout the 80s, uh, they didn't really kind of put out that much stuff because they had a hard time, you know, getting like uh, distributors and just kind of getting the business up and running. But, you know, by the mid 90s, they were sort of the premier Sky label in America and they would put out you know, tons of great records every year. And like, if you were a ska band in America in the mid nineties, like the coolest thing you could do, like would have been to be on, on moon records. And, um, you know, they actually, um, you know, one of their compilations in the late eighties had the first ever, uh, no doubt song on record. So they were, you know, they had this band called, called the uh, dance hall crashers later on who ended up going to a major label, they had, uh, you know, the Pie Tasters and the Slackers who ended up going to this uh, pretty big West Coast label uh, called uh, Hellcat. Um, so they were kind of like, in some ways, they were kind of like the, you know, the minor league. Like they would kind of grow these bands and then they would, you know, sometimes go off and leave for uh, bigger labels. But yeah, they were, um, you know, like, like uh, you really can't can't sort of overstate the importance. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, uh, you really can't overstate the importance of uh, Moon Records in, in terms of the you know, popularity of Sky in the '90s. So, so I know that um, you had, you know, you're you've, you've been a little sick, so your voice is bugging you. So I'm going to just two more questions. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> to give you a break, I'm and I'll try and combine one of them because so a lot of this. Um, is first person inter- you did a lot of interviews you have this in the back you sort of talk about who you were able to talk to and and sort of where you got your work from so a lot of these well mostly men but there's some women are still out there they're still touring they're still doing this stuff so like what is it and even though we kind of you know your focus is on like this big push of scon swing in the late 90s um as of you know 2020 a lot of these bands were still going strong so can you talk a little bit about kind of 
as you were talking to these musicians and, and sort of doing this research and work, what you saw that kept this going, um, what it was that sort of keeps pushing the music forward? Yeah, that's the, that's a good question. I think, I think ska is one of those, you know, types of music that it just, it just really gets its claws in you. And, uh, you know, you can, you know, try to break from it for a while and you can try to, uh, you know, deny your ska past if you must, but it always comes back to you at some point. Um, and um, yeah, it's just a thing that I, you know, I think if you love it, it just kind of sticks with you. And for all these bands that are still doing it, um, you know, it's like a lot of them at this point, it's not their full-time thing anymore. Like a lot of these bands back in the day, they, you know, they, that's what you did. That's what they did. They were just in, you know, mustard plug or something. That was like their job. Um, and now it's the kind of thing where they've got like families and, you know, full-time jobs and they've got kids and, um, but they go out and play shows like during the summer or they might, you know, tour once or twice a year and kind of balance that with, uh, with their other things. And I, mean, I guess in that, you know, sense, it's like not really that much different than, in, than, you know, with like any other genre. I'm like, I'm sure there's, you know, uh, punk bands that are in the same uh, situation or, you know, kind of like any genre, but yeah, I know there's a real kind of special connection, I think, with, you know, ska bands and their fans. Um, there's like a loyalty that uh, has, you know, persisted all these years. And there's still, you know, new ska bands are, are sort of still forming. And it's actually had kind of like a little uh, resurgence in the last couple of years, which has been uh, really great to see. You know, less so on the on the swing side, because it, you know, swing, I think, just, it, it you know, kind of became this like, you know, commercial phenomenon uh, so quickly and uh kind of you know burned out almost as fast as it as it ascended and you know never really kind of recovered in uh, quite the same way although there are still new bands out there doing it and there's certainly still people that um are really into like the dancing and there's a lot of you know lindy hop competitions and things like that but um yeah the ska scene always seems to produce new bands just because i don't know people uh, people hear this music and they, and they and they just love it and uh it just kind of sticks with you i don't know so my final question, I will just ask um, if there's something you're working on next or there's something with the book, anything you sort of that last like promotion, anything <laughs> that you want to kind of put out there. Uh, as for next things, you know, nothing at the moment. Um, I guess I could give sort of a, a plug to my Substack, which, uh, you know, there was uh, quite a few bands that, you know, that I wish I could have included in the book, but obviously with uh, limited space and, and time, there were some that, um, that, that that I wasn't able to include. So I, I started a Substack to kind of tell the stories of some of the bands that I had to leave out. Um, and I've done about, I think like eight or nine articles. I'm not sure if there'll be more, but uh, you know, they're out there and I'd, I'd love for people to check them out if they have any interest in, in any of these bands. Um, you know, I did one on, um, on a Spring Hill Jack who are like sort of the great band out of um, the sort of, out of, um, I mean, I'm from, I'm from just outside of um, Hartford. And, uh, so, you know, Spring Hill Jack was sort of like the big band in, uh, in, in my home state growing up. Um, so it was a real thrill to talk to them. And there was this band, um, uh, Johnny Too Bad and the Strikeouts were also out of, uh, Connecticut. Um, so I profiled them. Um, there was uh, the Alstonians out of Boston, uh, the Smooths out of Baltimore. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, I'm at, I guess if you just like search for, you know, Substack, uh, Ken Partridge or a hell of a hat, uh, you'll find it. But, um, yeah, there's just, you know, 
you know, I guess I could have, you know, I could have written a, you know, 9,000 a page book about, about this era, but, um, you know, had to make some, had to make some hard choices along the way. Uh, but I'd love for people to check out the other ones if they're, if they're so inclined. Well, Ken, thank you again. Ken Partridge, hell of a hat, the rise of 90s Scott and swing. Thanks for talking with me for new books and popular culture. Oh, thank you so much. I had a really good time.